Section 1 of the National Geographic Magazine, Volume 7, November 1896. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Deborah Wade, Cambridge, United Kingdom. The Vidvatusrand and the Revolt of the Outlanders by George F. Becker. The South African Republic, or, as it is more often called, the Transvaal, lies in southeastern Africa, between the Limpopo, or Crocodile River, on the north, and the Vaal River, on the south. Portuguese and British possessions shut it off from the Indian Ocean on the east, and the country to the north and west of the Republic is also British. The Vaal River is tributary to the Orange, which flows into the Atlantic, while the Limpopo empties into the Indian Ocean. The watershed between these rivers is the Witwatersrand, or Whitewater Range, which trends nearly east and west about south latitude 26 degrees and is therefore only 150 geographical miles from the Tropic of Capricorn. The Transvaal may be roughly described as an elevated plateau, most of which lies between 4,000 and 6,000 feet above sea level. To the north of the Vidvatusrand, the general level is not much over 4,000 feet. Immediately to the south of this watershed, near Johannesburg, the elevation is about 6,000 feet, gradually diminishing towards the Vaal. The general aspect of the country reminds one of the Laramie Plains, but the rainfall averages about 30 inches, and the climate is mild and equable. The soil is only moderately fertile, and 15 years ago the country was considered fit for nothing but pastoral occupation. The Witwatersrand, in the neighbourhood of Johannesburg, consists of upturned edges of a thick mass of quartzites, shales and conglomerates known as the Lower Cape Formation. These rocks are of Paleozoic age but carry no fossils. The conglomerates of this group almost all contain more or less gold. The most famous mines of the Transvaal are opened upon a certain set of these conglomerate beds known as the Main Reef Series. Resting unconformably on the lower cape is another group, known as the upper cape, and containing one bed of conglomerate, the black reef, which has been profitably worked for gold at some points. An extensive sheet of dolomite forms one member of the upper cape. Unconformably on the upper cape lies the Triassic, carrying very extensive beds of coal, one of the treasures of the Transvaal, of which little is heard outside of South Africa. As the country is also rich in iron ores, one may expect to hear more in the future than in the past of these coal fields. Meantime, they supply the gold mining industry with good and cheap fuel. The Lower Cape Formation, with the main reef series, is exposed only to a limited extent. Within less than 20 miles of Johannesburg, both to the east and west. The Upper Cape and the Triassic beds flood the country 
and for a long distance only an occasional glimpse is to be had of the lower cave, with its auriferous conglomerate. It is said by various engineers to reappear occasionally for hundreds of miles from Johannesburg, as for instance in Zululand, and to be more or less auriferous wherever found. It need hardly be remarked that the search for the main reef beneath the Trias is most arduous, that it will eventually be traced far beyond the surface exposures of the district is quite certain. In this paper, the Vidvartus-Rund district alone is of a special interest, but in conveying a general notion of the Transvaal, it must be remarked that this is by no means the only auriferous district in the Republic. There are four other districts containing in all ten mines, which yield at the rate of over a hundred thousand dollars each annually. Of these, the Klerksdorp district carries gold in conglomerates. In the three other districts, the gold is found in ordinary veins. The Sheba mine in the Dekarp district has yielded over five million dollars. Four of the important mines lie in the Leidenberg district, and one, the Sutherland, in the Zoutspanberg district. The total gold product of the Transvaal for 1895, outside of the Witwatersrand, was $3,581,000, while the Rand alone yielded $38,110,000. For comparison, it may be noted that the United States produced in 1895 $46,610,000 worth of gold, or about $4 million more than the Transvaal. Statistics show that the yield of the outside mines is increasing about as rapidly as that of the Rand. The great gold deposits of the Rand are beds of conglomerate known in South Africa as Banquet or Reef. They crop out for some 27 miles at a distance of from 1 to 2 miles from the crest of the Vidvatusrand and usually dip near the surface at an angle of 45 degrees or more. When followed downward, the dip diminishes somewhat rapidly to 25 degrees or less. None of the mines are yet very deep. None, in fact, reached 2,000 feet, but the briefs have been found by the diamond drill to a depth of 2,500 feet. The structure of the country seems to show that below 2,000 foot level, the reefs will continue for a long distance at a moderate angle. How deep mining can be carried on may be more or less questionable, but the mining engineers on the rant confidently believe that they can get down 5,000 feet, and I agree with them. The ore of the rand is phenomenally uniform for an auriferous deposit. While it is locally patchy, considerable areas show only moderate fluctuations from a general average. The quantity of gold can be computed with something like the same confidence that the amount of coal in a coal seam can be calculated. Such a computation is in the nature of things only a first approximation. But within certain limits it has a value. Estimates of this kind for the whole area or portions of it have been made by various experts, among whom may be mentioned 
Mr. Hamilton Smith, Bergrath Schmeisser of the Prussian Mining Service, Mr. John Hayes Hammond, Messrs. Hatch and Chalmers, and Professor Delaunay of the Paris School of Mines. These estimates accord fairly well. The latest is Professor Delaunay's, who, after a review of the other estimates, calculates by a method of his own that to a depth of a thousand metres, that's 2,381 feet, and for a length of outcrop of 25 miles, the amount of gold accessible is 13 or 14 milliards of francs, or from 2,600 to 2,800 million dollars. This would give down to the 5,000 foot level from 3,962 to 4,267 million dollars. Other of the estimates similarly treated would give still larger values. Hatch and Chalmers, on the other hand, estimate that the rent, proper, together with outlying portions of the district, all within about 20 miles of Johannesburg, will yield down to the 5,000-foot level about $3,500 million. I have not been able to find any grounds for regarding this as an overestimate and I know of no one familiar with the deposits who thinks it is exaggerated. The sketch of the character and resources of the Transvaal, just given, contains nothing new. It has been outlined in order to indicate how it happens that a community has suddenly sprung up at Johannesburg, composed of enterprising, highly intelligent and perhaps somewhat impatient men, hailing from many different lands men as different as possible from the pastoral pioneers who compose the South African Republic. The Boers and the foreigners, or outlanders as they are called in Dutch, were not congenial and the great mining camp has all along constituted a menace to the peace of the Republic. As everyone now knows, the threatened danger was not averted. The dramatic incidents which have taken place in the Transvaal during the past ten months have drawn the attention of the whole world to that country. The interest in these events felt in the United States has been little less intense than that in Great Britain. This is entirely natural, for many of the leading men in Johannesburg are Americans. Indeed, the mining industry is chiefly under the guidance of American engineers, and the United States was represented on the Reform Committee by seven members. It really behooves the American public, therefore, to know how prominent American representatives of an important profession have behaved themselves under trying circumstances. While there is a natural sympathy in the United States for Anglo-Saxons taking up arms for their rights, we, as Republicans, also sympathise with the South African Republic in the endeavour to maintain its independence. This fellow feeling makes it all the more interesting and important to examine carefully and, if haply such a thing is possible, impartially as well as carefully, into the causes and conduct of the revolt. I wish this inquiry had fallen into other hands than mine, but I happened to visit the country in April for a stay of some months. Several of the condemned men are old friends of mine, as well as colleagues. It naturally fell to my part to make such efforts on their behalf as I could, 
and still in spite of these personal relations, it is clear to me that there is much to be said on the Boer side of the questions at issue. So far as opportunities go, therefore, I am perhaps in as good a position as any one can be to review the circumstances without prejudice. The great difficulty in this, as in any inquiry of an historical nature, is to ascertain the facts, for these are differently represented by different, though seemingly well-informed persons. I trust it will be found that I have measurably succeeded. It would be impossible to understand the conditions which led to the grievances of the outlanders without considering some of the influences which have made the Dutch colonists or Boers what they are. The Boers are most closely related to us ethnologically, but their political and industrial history has been so different that jealousies and antagonisms have arisen, which, though highly regrettable, are by no means without excuse. The Boers, like the English, are in the main of Teutonic blood, with a relatively small infusion of French stock. Like the English, they are stubborn, self-reliant, fond of the chase, and admirably adapted to cope with the difficulties incident to colonisation in a country occupied by savage beasts and still more savage men. The Boer ideal seems to be a life on a larger state, with plenty of sport and the occupation of not too exigent stock breeding and farming. So far, their tastes do not differ greatly from those of many Englishmen but they are for the most part ignorant of the refinements of life so dear to advanced Anglo-Saxons, and perhaps on this account they are most devoid of the commercial instincts through which such taste might be gratified. They are, it is said, usually able to read print, but for the most part their reading is confined to the Bible. They are highly religious and the Bible appeals to them, as to few other peoples, because the scenery and material conditions of the book are so similar to those by which they are surrounded. The very animals are the same. Their religion is sombre and puritanical. It is that of the Old Testament, with little sweetness or mercy in it. Under normal conditions, the Boers are generously hospitable, and they are brave. It is true that Englishmen have sometimes reviled them as cowardly, but their whole history, and particularly the battles of Bohmplatz and Majuba Hill, show the contrary. The accusation seems to be due, in part, to the fact that, like all continental Europeans, they are greatly averse to fisticuffs, and partly to the fact that, in fighting with rifles, they avail themselves of cover wherever they can. Taking advantage of cover... I understand to be a well-established principle of all modern tactics. Many of them are said to be untruthful, at least in matters of business. This is not strange, for it was long ago observed that financial responsibilities do more than the most stringent religion or than amiability and bravery to foster a high standard of truthfulness. The Boers are sometimes spoken of as a degenerate race. But this is certainly a slander. They usually possess an excellent physique, and it is perfectly well known that one or two generations of education put the Dutch colonist on a par with men of any nationality. 
The struggle for existence and for freedom has saved them from mental stagnation. That they are backward as a race, according to our standards, is true. Much of the 17th century still clings to them, but they have lost none of the capacity for advance. Mr. John Nixon, in his story of the Transvaal, 1885, which certainly cannot be accused of partiality to the Dutch colonists, says, I have the pleasure of numbering many intelligent and educated Boers among my acquaintance, and I desire to put on record my opinion that a good Boer is quite equal to a good Englishman. Nay, in one respect he is better for he adds to the virtues of an Englishman an unbounded and generous hospitality. The educated Boer is a splendid stock. No one can deny that on that day, Majuba, the Boers fought bravely and well. The outlanders commonly form an extremely unfavourable opinion of the Boer. They do not desire Boer hospitality, and they see nothing of his qualities as a pioneer while in business they find him suspicious, untrustworthy and behind the age. But it would not be fair to judge of a people like the Boers entirely from a commercial standpoint. The Boer, on the other hand, is not without justification for suspecting English designs on his independence, and he can point to many promises of the British government which have not been fulfilled but it is not fair to judge a people like the English entirely from a political standpoint. The most important of all the characteristics of the Transvaal Boer is his passion for freedom, or what in his case is tantamount to the same thing, his horror of British domination. In 1880, the women of the Transvaal urged their sons and husbands to arms, bidding them die like patriots, if need were. This passionate horror of English rule is an historical development. The Boers have had little opportunity to observe how mild and beneficent English rule can be under certain circumstances. Cape Colony passed into the possession of the British Crown by force of arms in 1806 and was formally ceded by the Prince of Orange in 1814. The white population of the Cape at that time consisted of the descendants of Dutch colonists and French Huguenots. The latter had found their way to Africa through Holland after the revocation of the Edict of Nantes in 1685. At no time did the Huguenots exceed one-sixth of the colonists, or, if the Dutch East India Company's servants accounted, one-eighth of the total European population. The colonists had little intercourse with Europe during the 18th century. Like other colonists of the time, they owned slaves, their lives were pastoral and agricultural, and except for the Bible, their studies were confined to woodcraft. The petty impositions of the Dutch East India Company had made them unscrupulous so far as transactions with the government were concerned. The incorrigible carelessness of Hottentot servants had weakened the habits of cleanliness which they had brought from Holland, and the possession of slaves had produced its usual deleterious effects. Thus, except in the resources appropriate to pioneers, they had been left behind in the march of civilization. 
The British colonial policy in the early decades of this century had not yet developed into its modern phase of mildness in any part of the world. In 1815 took place a little disturbance which has been designated by the exaggerated name of the Rebellion of Slachtersneck. The origin of this affair was the refusal of a Boer named Bezoudenhout to comply with a summons to answer a charge of having ill-treated a coloured servant. There seems to have been no politics in it. Two of the insurgent Boers and one hot-and-tot British soldier only were killed, yet the British punished the revolt by hanging five men, none of whom had shed a drop of blood, while thirty-two others were condemned to banishment, imprisonment or fines. This cruel sentence, followed by no commutation, has been forgotten by the Boers, and small is the wonder. The use of the Dutch language was forbidden in the courts of Cape Colony in 1827, and for a short time those who did not understand English were even disqualified from jury duty. In 1834 the slaves were emancipated suddenly by an Act of Parliament. The compensation proposed was only one-third of the appraised value, and the conditions of obtaining this fraction were so onerous that the colonists in many cases realised only a fifth or sixth of the actual value, and sometimes nothing at all. Many families were reduced to want, and great misery was caused by the injudicious execution of a measure the principle of which was laudable. The emancipated Negroes were placed on political equality with their recent masters, and the government refused to pass vagrant laws to control the blacks. This was a period when philanthropists were very enthusiastic on the subject of the universal brotherhood of man, and it was supposed by many well-meaning people that Kaffir tribes were intrinsically on a par with white communities. The Boers knew better. Their refusal to acknowledge the equality of white and black drew down on them the wrath of the missionaries, who were extremely influential both in London and Cape Town. There seems to be no doubt that the Dutch were represented as far more cruel to the natives than they really were, while the blacks were painted as far less barbarous than they are known to have been. That some terrible cruelties have been perpetrated by the Boers on the blacks during periods of hostility is not to be doubted. It must be remembered that white prisoners taken by the blacks were and are tortured with indignity sickening to hear of and quite indescribable in print. Thus the mutual antagonism of the Boers and the English was fomented by the Apostles of Peace. The various grievances briefly indicated above led to the first great trek or emigration of the Boers from Cape Colony in 1836-37. to 37. Taking only their herds and such movables as they could load on their wagons, thousands left the country. The emigrants themselves maintained that they left the colony not to avoid law, but lawlessness, and they made it evident that their chief motive was to escape the severe yet inefficient English domination. In a manifesto by one of their principal men, Peter Retief, written in 1837, it is asserted, We quit this colony under the full assurance that the English government has nothing more to require of us and will allow us to govern ourselves without its interference in future. 
vain hope. In migrating into the wilderness, the Boers naturally came into contact with the natives, not the Negroes of the United States who came from the west coast of Africa, nor the Hottentots of the Cape, but the great Bantu or Kafir race, which includes the Zulus, Matabili and Basutos, etc., these people are of dark bronze hue and have good athletic figures. They possess some excellent traits, but are horribly cruel once they have smelled blood. The Bantus appear to have reached the Cape about the same time as the Europeans, killing out Hottentots and Bushmen as they advanced and waging furious intertribal wars. Again and again a Bantu tribe, effectively organised under some able chief, has swept a great region clear of human beings when their witch-finding ceremonies are considered as supplementing the unsparing slaughter of war, it is remarkable that any considerable number of Bantu remained. Nothing but the phenomenal fecundity of the race has kept up its numbers. The trekking Boers thus met tribes who held their territories only by right of recent and bloody conquests, and to whom battle was the object of life. If the Boers had small compunction in taking land from them, it is perhaps not to be wondered at. The Boers paid for it, like the Bantus, with blood. The history of the conflicts between the Boers and Zulus is wildly romantic. It has been written and cannot be repeated here. The greater part of the territory occupied by the South African Republic and by the Orange Free State was absolutely depopulated by the Matabili or rebel Zulus, under Mosela Katza in 1817. Twenty years later, this chief and his followers fled to the north of the Limpopo River as a result of independent defeats by the Zulu subject of Dingan and by the Boers. When they left Cape Colony, a portion of the Boers settled in Natal after the loss of a great part of their number, treacherously slaughtered, by the Zulu chief, Dingaan. The English had repeatedly refused to annex Natal, but after the Boers had been settled there for five years and had set up a republic, the British took possession, and to escape them, most of the Boers trekked again to the north of the Orange River, where many of their kinsfolk had preceded them in 1836 to 1837. Repeated official declarations have been made that the British domination would not be extended to the northward of this river. Nevertheless, in 1848, British sovereignty was proclaimed over the region between the Orange River on the south and the Vaal on the north, practically the area now occupied by the Orange Free State. The Boers resisted the annexation. Two of their number were hanged, and the property of the other recalcitrants was confiscated. As early as 1842, many Boers had entered the Transvaal. After the annexation of the country to the south, many more crossed the Vaal. In 1852, the population amounted to about 5,000 white families, and the independence of the Transvaal was acknowledged by England in the Sand River Convention. In 1877, the Transvaal was annexed by England on the plea that the weakness of the state was a menace to English interests. Proclamation of Annexation and Address of Sir T. Shepston The annexation was nominally provisioned. In 1879, Sir Garnet Wolseley announced that it should continue forever.
but the unwillingness of the Boers to be British subjects had not diminished, nor were they without grave reasons for dissatisfaction. It is acknowledged by men of all parties that the promises made by the English at the time of the annexation were not kept. Mr. Nixon writes, nor were any of the other promises which were expressed or implied at the time of the annexation carried out. Late in 1880, the Republican flag was again hoisted. War and the Battle of Majuba Hill followed, and in 1881 the Transvaal was again acknowledged independent, though with the reservation of British suzerainty. In 1884, the relation of the two countries was further modified by a convention, which is still in force. In this document, the only substantial right reserved to Great Britain is that of ratifying treaties between the Republic and foreign powers. An attempt has been made in the foregoing paragraphs to show the origin of the hostility and distrust with which the Boers regard the English, but it is not to be inferred that the British policy in South Africa has been one of consistent and deliberate oppression. Vacillating it has been through changes in party government, through ignorance in the colonial office of the conditions in South Africa, and through the idiosyncrasies of arbitrary or doctrinaire commissioners. Many of the British governors have lost reputation and have been recalled in consequence of their mistakes, but South Africa has gained little by the penalties meted out to her rulers. In public affairs, enlightened wisdom is more useful than virtue, for wrongs, though unintentionally committed, can seldom be righted or even fully atoned for. The loyalty of many Englishmen is so extreme that they esteem it a blessing for any people to come under English domination, whether willingly or otherwise. They cannot understand how people can prefer independence to the British rule. This fact explains many instances of aggression, which to an American seem without excuse. End of section one. Recording by Deborah Wade, Cambridge, United Kingdom.